Please sit comfortably. Well, evening, everyone. Second day of session. Um, change of tack here in terms of themes for Dharma talks. Seems like I've been doing a number the last two or three on some variation on neuroscience, which fascinates me. So we'll, we'll get out of that for a while into something else. And to give a title to this talk, it's appro Approaching Relationships with a Beginner's Mind. Now, some of my inspiration for this comes from um, my, my friend and uh, fellow Zen teacher, Ezra Bader's new book, which is called Aging for Beginners. Uh -huh. What a great title. So this is a variation on the same thing. Not only is, can we be, be a beginner in how we deal with aging because it's the first time we've got there, but there's also a beginner's mind that we can bring to relationships as well. So let's examine that a little more closely. If you look at what classic traditional Zen practice is, it emphasizes the fact that human beings are caught up in thinking, they're caught up in constructions of the mind, concepts, and instead of seeing the world as it is, like the suchness of experience, right, we see the world through this conceptual lens and we divide it up in various ways, good, bad, enlightenment, suffering, you know, right or wrong, success, failure, big, small, all those kind of qualities that we create out of it. And through the practice of silent meditation, focused meditation, it's like that monopolizing of the conceptual mind drops away and we get a, we get a glimmer into the suchness of experience. So it's just kind of seeing life as it is, as we say in our precepts, life as it is, the only teacher. You know, the, Life as it is, the, the cold weather, the hot weather, the wind, do you know, um, the wetness of water, do you know, the, the broom vertical against the wall, mm -hmm. the chair over there, just the suchness of life. That's what we emphasise a lot in Zen practice. And there's a lot of emphasis in Zen practice that when we see into the suchness of existence, um, it brings a sense of equanimity and an, a sense of peace and a sense of balance. Now, there's more to it than that. If we look at traditional Buddhist practice that Zen springs from, um, let me remind you of what the four immeasurables are. Four immeasurables are loving-kindness, compassion, empathic joy and equanimity. And it's the cultivation of all of those experiences which comes with Dharma practice. So if there's just equanimity and there's no loving kindness or joy or compassion, something's missing there from the frame. They all kind of rise together. If we really see through the, if we really wake up within the, the self-centered dream and we're less so self-preoccupied with ourselves and whether our, our lives are going according to the way we think they should go, then that's, that's what arises. That seems to be at the core of our being, that 
love comes up, empathy comes up, joy comes up, compassion and equanimity. So if Zen is to be true to its Buddhist roots, when we, when we really see through the ego structure, um, all of these things arise. And the thing that we need to remember about Zen practice and about Dharma practice in general is that it's all relational. It's all relational. Um, the icon of the Buddha sitting, a man sitting alone in meditation, yes, that's, that's the, he's almost like demonstrating this is the way to practice, just this. Uh-huh. But the actual insight that he came to was an insight of that Buddha nature pervades the whole universe. Uh-huh. I am everything, everything is me. Mm-hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh refers to it as interbeing. All of that is relational. It's ecological. People, some people call it deep ecology. It's, it's an ecological view of the world. If it's ecological, it's relational. All of those terms, loving kindness, compassion, joy, even equanimity, are relational terms that point to the Dharma experience. And if you go and look at another framework, all of the precepts are also relational. They spell out how we empathically and mindfully relate to others or how we relate to other beings. You know, so all those around right speech, um, not stealing, not lying, not harming, not indulging in anger, all of those, all of those precepts are giving us guidelines as how we relate to others. So it's not just mindfulness of oneself, of one's inner experience or one's conscious experience as some inner, just an inner experience. It's, it's a mindfulness of the whole of life, the largeness of life, a mindfulness of others as well. So all, all of that is relational. And we, we need to keep all of that in mind when we do Zen practice. It's not just a solitary um, activity. <clears throat> Now, what's also a basic aspect of Dharma practice is that human beings experience dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering, which maybe it's, it's the, that's the acute form of the illness. Um, but the more chronic existential condition that people have, and people tell me, scholars tell me it's the more accurate translation is dissatisfactoriness, dissatisfaction, existential dissatisfaction. It's like it's not enough, not good enough, something's missing, something's not quite right. And that all human beings experience that to one degree or another. And if we're all caught in the self-centred dream in some way, we all experience dissatisfaction to some degree or another. And then two people coming into a relationship or a family of people together or a group of people together bring their collective dukkha to the experience, right? <laughs> to the relationship. But what do we do with it? Do you know how, how then do, do we approach this aspect of our human condition, which is so pervasive, and how does it play out in relationships? It plays out in, in various kind of ways. There are, there are numerous patterns that 
couple therapists have, have identified, which I won't go into in much detail, just keep the broad strokes, brush strokes there. But um, one of the themes that's emerged out of my work the last few weeks is you come across experiences of people in couple therapy and they've got one partner's unhappy about something, they're, they're dissatisfied about something in the relationship or something that's happened and um, it's niggling them and they need to get it out and talk about it, you know, to be able to move on. Now, there's people who do that. I can think of a particular example, a woman who was um, kind of unhappy about where they were living and how they decided to move, etc., etc. And when I brought them together as a couple, the husband stopped, listened, understood her, acknowledged her difficult that she was experiencing, and she moved on. It was simple as that. It's like, hear me out, understand what I'm going through, empathise, I've let it go now, I've moved on. And that's just, that's what is a healthy thing to happen in relationships. However, there are other instances in relationships where um, someone's got a complaint about something or a gripe, they get listened to, um, someone does something to try and change the situation and they're never satisfied. There's always another complaint coming up, you know, another gripe coming up. It's like for some people there's a bottomless pit of dissatisfaction, you know, and it doesn't what, matter what people do around them, they're never satisfied. They'll always find something else to bring up. That's very deep suffering, that's very deep dukkha. But what the difference is, is that if we have some degree of insight, whether we call it dharma insight or even just therapeutic insight, whatever it is, there's some, particularly in the dharma though, there is some sense that somehow I'm responsible for my own dissatisfaction. Right? There's an ownership of that, that something's not right within me in the way that I process my life, live my life, whatever, and I'm causing my own suffering. That's, that's one of the basic tenets of Buddhism, that we create our own suffering. But if we, and if we have that inside, then relationships change. Right? You can be, be dissatisfied, and sometimes you've got genuine complaints, whatever, you air them, you get listened to, and then you move on. Mm-hmm. and then you reconnect again. But if you have no insight into the fact that you create your own suffering, then what's the consequence of that? Someone else is to blame for it, mm-hmm. particularly the people closest to it. Someone else is always to blame that the, for the fact that I feel unhappy. Right? And if you get one person in a relationship like that, it's like it never, it never ends. If you get two people like that in a relationship, well, it's just crazy. Uh, probably can't last too long. Mm-hmm. And so a fundamental thing in relationships is that we need to acknowledge that, yes, we do suffer, we, we experience dukkha, and much of it is generated by ourselves, and we have to take responsibility for dealing with that in our own way. Mm-hmm. And by the way, our partner might help us as well along the way and be supportive around that. But without that fundamental um, taking of responsibility 
then relationships nearly always go awry in some way. When um, I was talking the other day and quoting Joko's um, book, do you know the way her, her book begins about um, experiencing everything fully? Well, what would be a, a, a Dharma way of dealing with complaining? Do you know, if we find we're complaining about something in a relationship. By the way, a lot of complaints are legitimate. I don't want to make the point, and Joko said the same thing, a lot of complaints are legitimate. It's really not whether you have them or not, it's how you handle them, right? But when complaints arise, or as a constant stream of complaints always comes up, or criticism, how do we then work with it? So, simply, to bring what Joko was saying about it, if you have, have the desire to complain, you know, or the intention of complain, if you stopped, and you just fully experience what it's like to want to complain. Right? Just stop, right, put, hit the pause button, you know, instead of verbalising it, acting it out. To stop right there and just go right into the embodied experience. What is it like to want to complain? What's this like? Uh -huh. And you kind of feel it out from the inside. And if you stay with the experience, that unpleasant experience, something would eventually shift in, shift in there. If you're mindful of something for long enough, something shifts, something transforms, and some, perhaps some insight emerges, oh yeah, maybe I'm responsible for this, this dissatisfaction that's behind everything. Now where we can bring traditional Zen practice to this about um, seeing below concepts, getting below the surface level of concepts into a, a deeper, more connected experience with other people and other life, is it's part of this process is examining the fixed views that we have of other people around us, particularly people close to us. So when we first meet people, we're kind of beginner's mind, open mind, falling in love as sort of things progress along the way, we start to develop opinions about other people. Now, they may be accurate to some degree, but the problem is when they become fixed. Mm -hmm. um, and D.T. Suzuki said in one of his early books, when he was doing some lectures on um, the Eightfold Noble Path, and the first one he came to was Right View. Mm -hmm. And his words always stuck with me. He said, right, there's no right view as a right or wrong view. What it's referring to is no fixed view. See, in the Dharma, there are no fixed views. Everything's in flux and changing all the time. The person who acted like that yesterday might be a different person tomorrow. But if you develop fixed views about your partner, then a problem arises. And if they do the same to you, a problem arises. And then you're not actually acting on that precept of um, relating to others with openness and possibility. It's all closed down. It's all projected onto them and nothing can shift because it's frozen into that position. Joko in a book talks about um, 
core beliefs that we hold about ourselves, like feelings of unworthiness, unlovability, that we're stupid or whatever it might be. Um, and that, that's true. That's a tenet of psychology as well, that it's there. But if we look at what the problem is, the nature of a core belief is that it's a fixed belief. Uh, and it's so rigid that it doesn't matter what rational empirical evidence you put before it or reasoning, it doesn't shift it. It's kind of outside of rationality. So not only can we have fixed core beliefs about ourselves, which then get acted out, that's part of it. But the other fixed beliefs we have are about the people in our life or about people in general, about society in general, or about people of different gender or different races, you know, um, that becomes a rigidity as well. Mm. So Dharma practice is about dissolving those conceptual rigidities and having no view. <laughs> no view, not a right view, no view, uh -huh. no fixed view. Uh -huh. But human beings don't automatically like that because our brains, it's one of the books I was reading recently that's described the brain as a future predicting machine. You know, we collect all these memories and we do so in order so we can predict the future and we can, you know, work out the safe, predictable um, life that's going to be good for us to you know, avoid all the bad things. Uh -huh. And if we spend all of our time doing that, we're looking for certainty all the time. Now, what seems counterintuitive is that if you're not dwelling on the past and the past mistakes of your partner or whatever, and you're not, you're not, um, you're not ruminating on what they're going to do past on, based on past experience, the alternative is to rest in the present moment. And that's beginner's mind. The beginner's mind has no view. And when you rest in the present moment, you get out of fixed predictions, fixed ideas about the way life is. Now, there's something, when you get used to it, it's actually very comfortable, it's the best place to be. But when, when you start off in practice, being in the present moment's kind of a little bit sort of um, edgy, you know, because there's no certainty in it. It's, it's momentary, it's bubbling along, it changes all the time, it's unpredictable. Right? So people would much rather go back to the safe approach of ba basing things on the past, on memory, predicting the future, rather than just being in the present. The, the present really is that space we go into. It is, it is beginner's mind in itself because it has no certainty about anything. It's wide open. You know, it's willing just to meet and respond whatever comes in front of it, you know, without any rigid preoccupations. And that's, that's the beginner's mind that we can bring to relationships, right? No fixed views, no holding on to, to rigidity in any kind of way. And there is a dissolving of the self. See, what happens if there's really a, a deep experience of suchness and the, um, the ego structure breaks down, um, perhaps we can't fully explain why it happens yet except in broad terms. 
But what seems to happen all the time is that people just don't have an experience of equanimity. People have an experience of deep empathy towards others. Empathy towards their joy and happiness. Empathy towards their compassion, towards their suffering. And to animals, all beings. All of that opens up because it's not just about me anymore. It's about everything. If something else is suffering, I'm suffering. That's the kind of level we get down to. So, as human beings, we can live on the surface and we're living, when we're living on the surface, we're just living in that conceptual level. And also what we're doing is we're just living on the surface of our very primitive emotions of um, fight and flight working all the time and never really switching off. So when we're in flight mode, we're kind of worrying about things all the time. And then when we're in fight mode, we're complaining or blaming, you know, or getting angry at someone. And our lives can be lost, you know, just floating around on that superficial surface of stories, conceptualising and fight, flight, worry, complaining all the time. That's all all we live out. Once that settles, through meditation practice and the present and the, the practice of opening up into a beginner's mind, it's like we just drop below the surface and we, and we drop into something deeper and we actually find that we have a much richer emotional experience than just what is happening on the top. And sometimes it's not always... Um, pleasant necessarily but it's kind of deeper it's richer you just know it for yourself like you can be you can be hovering around worrying about something or getting angry about something and then bang you drop into sadness you know some empathic sadness towards someone you know or someone you've lost and it changes the whole experience but it's like we're it's like we're scared to drop into that. When we're scared to drop into the more vulnerable feelings of softness, of of, of, um, of sadness or love, you know, or empathy. So we, we've got to keep this hard shell going all the time. But that's that's simply what happens when we wake up from the self-centered dream. In emotional terms, we drop below that level, and um, something more spacious and loving and kind emerges from that and we're not caught up in the stories quite so much. So you put all that together um, and you bring that to the experience of relationships, that's, that's very different from one not recognising that you're the source of your own dissatisfaction and then worrying or blaming everyone else for it. You've taken responsibility for it, you drop below the surface and then you're not such a difficult person to live with. Right? We're all difficult to live with. I had a funny conversation with my GP a few months ago. He sometimes refers people to me and we were talking about someone and, and, and we were talking very favourably about this um, patient we had in common. And he, but he said off the cuff, yeah, but I bet she's really difficult to live with. And I kind of went 
quiet for a minute. Like I felt, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to validate that. And then he came back and he, and he said, and he said, you know, in a good-natured way, well, I suppose we're all difficult to live with, aren't we? <laughs> it's true. We're all difficult to live with. Um, we all rub up against each other in some kind of way. But as we mature through Dharma practice, ideally what would happen is that we, we do become easier to live with, hopefully. Mm-hmm. That would be one of the, the hallmarks of some kind of shift because we want to harmonise in an, in an empathic way rather than holding on to rigid positions. That's why relationships... Um, are such an important part of Dharma practice. Um, it's not part of the monastic tradition so much, but they all still had to deal with um, relationships with their brother monks or sister nuns and so on. But that's how a relationship can really assist you in deepening your Dharma practice when you work with it that way. So that opens up another avenue of how we can practice. Um, being aware when we're caught up in chronic complaining, you know, chronic criticism, chronic stonewalling, withdrawing, you know, takes on various different forms and, and to recognise it, take responsibility for it and experience what it's like to have those feelings. Go right into the feeling and experience what it's like. That's, that's the kind of magic of, of meditation, of mindfulness. You, you look at something long enough and hard enough and deep enough without thinking about it, and usually invariably it transforms in some way. It dissolves. Thank you, everyone.